Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm chopping it up with the editors of the Color Conventions Movement, Black Organizing in the 19th Century. And they are Dr. P. Gabrielle Foreman and Dr. Jim Casey. Dr. Foreman is a poet's daughter an interdisciplinary scholar raised on the south side of Chicago in Venice Beach, California. She is the founding faculty director of the award-winning Colored Conventions Project, which she co-directs with Dr. Jim Casey. It is housed in Penn State's Center for Digital Black Research, also known in the digital world as Hashtag Dig Black, a center she launched and co-directs with Dr. Shirley Moody Turner. Hashtag Dig Black is made up of a cross-institutional team of undergraduate researchers, graduate student leaders, librarians, satellite faculty, and arts and community partners that brings the buried history of early Black organizing to digital life. Dr. Foreman is known for her long-standing commitment to working in collectives and to institution and community building. She also worked for a decade with renowned dance uh, educator and instructor, Lynette Overby and poet Glennis Ramon on performances based on her research that bring black history to the stage. Dr. Foreman is also the author of five books and editions, which include most recently, The Color Conventions Movement, Black Organizing in the 19th Century, which we'll be talking about today, and Praise Songs for Dave the Potter, Art and Poetry for David Drake. She is Professor of English, African American Studies, and History at Penn State, where she holds the Paternal Family Chair of Liberal Arts. In 2022, she will serve as the Distinguished Scholar in Residence at the American Antiquarian Society where she will work on a new book 
on the founding families of early black activism. We also have Dr. Jim Casey, who is an assistant professor of African-American studies, history, and English at Penn State, where he serves as the managing director of the Center for Digital Black Research. Once again, Dig Black. He earned his PhD in English at the University of Delaware and held a postdoctoral fellowship in the Center for Digital Humanities at Princeton University. With Dr. Foreman, he is co-director of the Color Conventions Project. Along with published or forthcoming work in Civil War history, American literature, and a variety of edited volumes on black print and Frederick Douglass, his current projects also include Douglass Day and a book on the history of black editors in the black and mass presses. Dr. Casey is the president of the Research Society for American Periodicals and can be found on Twitter at Jim C. Casey one. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to chat with me about your incredible editor volume. Before we dig deep into the contents of the text, can you both give the listening audience a roadmap of how the Color Convention Movement editor volume came about? Sure. Um, you had also asked at one point, you know, how they're tough to complete, you know, and, and, um, and, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that this comes out of a collective. I'm going to be a little long-winded on this one. Um, but we have had a really great team working on this volume, which has, and all along the volume, which started as a symposium with a conference committee that included our co-editors, Sarah Patterson and Michelle Bloom and Charlotte Marshall through the very end of the ed- editing of the volume with me and Jim. But pro tip, we also have a book coordinator, which is a great idea if you've got some research funds, and Darlia Dominelli really helped marshal this through. The other thing we did was graduate students responded to the drafts of the uh, essays that are included in the volume, and then they created exhibits. Um, and um, you also created an exhibit, Adam, which we're really looking forward to on Florida conventions and to getting that published when um, you were with the Colored Conventions Project a while back. And then those were later worked on by the Colored Conventions exhibit team and by our curriculum committee. So this is much more than a first edited collection on the convention movement. It also includes these exhibits and attached curriculum to about half of the essays for both high school students and teachers and also questions for college students with data visualizations and also access to the primary sources on coloredconventions.org. And we also obviously had incredible contributors to the book and they span across disciplines. So I won't name everybody, but a selection include Cabria Baumgartner and Psyche Williams-Forson and Derek Spires, Andre Johnson and Selena Sandifer. So folks from all different kinds of disciplines from rhetoric to historians, to women's studies scholars, American studies and material culture and food studies um, scholars as well. So this um, this book emerged from a symposium again um, that the Color Conventions Project put in with put on with UD Libraries and the Delaware Historical Society. And um, there's a, a pretty interesting story about the Delaware Historical Society. Um, I went over to talk to the curator about would they 
co-chair or co-host this um, this this symposium, and she pulled out the 1873 Delaware Convention, and uh, she asked if we knew about the 1873 convention that was held um, in the state where the the color conventions project was launched. And lo and behold, Francis Watkins Harper, the poet, novelist, reformer, organizer, was a speaker there. And she was just back from her post 15th Amendment visit to the South, which later would become, you know, the basis for her book of poetry, Sketches of Southern Life. And another delegate is Levi Coppin, who at the time was not yet the AME church's like 30th bishop and the husband of Fanny Coppin, which we all know Coppin State was named after. But he was the head of music ministry at Bethel AME Church in Wilmington, Delaware, where I've often worshipped. And he had just buried his first wife and nine-month-old son. Um, And it just sits blocks from where we held the symposium on the second day. So um, it was a really interesting uh, road to the symposium, um, which included so many people. Um, and through the project, the Color Conventions Project, which is really a collective, which allowed us to um, get to this volume. It was a collective effort, and um, and we're we're proud of the collective results. And Bethel is amazing. Like I've worshipped there, um, and I, I realized I, I got an email from them uh, recently that reminded me of the fact that I'm technically still a member. Um, so I actually should uh, go see that too, and. Uh, um, uh, uh, Reverend uh, or Bishop uh, Beeman was actually, I think he presided over uh, Biden's, um, uh, President Biden's inauguration, I think, or he held a, I think it was a benediction or, or something um, as well. So a storied you know, history, that's, that's, right? that's incredible. And, and, and linking, um, right, Beeman, now a bishop, back to Levi Coppin, right? And to see these people when they're so young, vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? They're not yet famous. They're not yet what we celebrate but to see the texture of their lives, right? Literally, that he's here as the music minister, right? Like he's the head of the music ministry and, and he's just buried his wife and child. He has not, you know, yet met the amazing Fanny Jackson um, and married her um, and, uh, and gone on the journey that he goes on to become, you know, such a leader. That's so critical, right? Is that people's political education, right? Their community is also in conventions and then they become leaders with this nexus of black support and black influence behind them. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, it, one of the things that, you know, from from working with y'all for, for the year that I was um, at the University of Delaware and, and kind of, you know, reading some of the early, I think, the introduction um, as well. You know, I, I've heard from y'all, you know, putting these edited volumes is together is not easy. Um, for sure. It's a, it's a labor of love, but it, that don't mean it's going to be easy. So uh, with that said, what were some of the challenges y'all encountered bringing uh, the Color Conventions movement um, edited volume together? It was much, much together? easier because we had such a collective team. So the challenge is the length of time that it takes edited collections to come to fruition. Um, one of our fabulous team members actually wrote about Black women and the Delaware Conventions, Denise Berger, um, and that comes out in Legacy Magazine, excuse me, Legacy Journal, before the book itself comes out, right? Even though, you know, she had access to some of the essays and quotes them. So um, again, you know, because we had 
a fabulous book coordinator um, and a and a wonderful team. The uh, the the chat and and that team includes me and Jim Man at the end. <laughs> All right, you know, working through it, but um, but it really helps to go ahead and um, get people to support you, right? Um, and to support the work if you have the the funding and opportunity to do that. I, I you know, a lot of people do edit collections and they're like, I am never gonna do that again. Right. But then you ask people like Dinah Ramey Berry, right, uh, Leslie um, Harris, right, people who, who are just amazing editors of collections, right, about how they do it and why. Right. And they really can make a difference in the field. This, again, is the first edited collection on the colored conventions ever put together. It's the second full length volume um, that we've seen in more than 50 years. So um, so being able to. To, to do it with the team allows you to be refreshed and go on and do your next work. So for example, I'm gonna be editing a, a volume called Douglas's Black Worlds um, in several years. Again, doing that in collectives, a symposium with Maurice um, Wallace and others um, so that that will really, that, that allows you to do the work and continue to do the work. Yeah, and so, you know, working in groups is, you know, so so important and in, in, um, te- teamwork, right? And, and I think that, um, you know, being someone still in graduate school, you know, how many times have we said group work? Nah, I'm good on that. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it individual over here. Uh, but, but one of the um, most valuable things that I learned um, while working for, for, uh, with y'all um, was just like how much fun working in teams actually is, which goes to kind of like push back against that, you know, individualistic mindset to say that maybe teamwork is just hard because you haven't found a good team and or a group to 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 work in in um in concert with um and, and or may even say co-conspire with um as well depending on the work that you're actually doing um and so one of the aspects that i enjoyed also about working with y'all is that y'all really exposed me to black digital humanities um, and, uh, Dr. Dr. Foreman, you the class that I took, um, I think it would, it would have been spring 2019, um, as well on, um, um, black politics in the 19th century print culture. I don't, I don't remember because, you know, we, you ended up taking an awesome photo with the university, I think in our last class. Um, but, uh, but, but I learned a lot, but I, I learned a lot of things I didn't know beforehand. And so many of the folks who are going to read this book. Uh, will realize that they might not actually know what digital humanities are, but especially what Black digital humanities are. So can y'all um, please define what this field is? Then tell us about the role um, Black digital humanities as a field and space played in the creation of the book, um, especially because of the project you both spearheaded, uh, I, I believe so, touts itself as a Black DH project. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on that uh, point right there. Yeah, you've got that absolutely right. We um, approached this volume in a somewhat unusual way, which is that we started a digital project, which later grew into a book. I think a lot of folks tend to focus on publishing a book and then try and figure out how to attach a digital kind of thing at the later stages. For us, it was really a continuation of the work that we were first invested in when we began doing this way back in April of 2012, actually on a field trip out to Harpers Ferry. talking, there's a whole group of co-founders out there in the world who are part of the early conversations. And for us, it was really about 
sort of engaging with this history in ways that went so far beyond what the historiography that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute really led us to believe was out there. And we got so invested in the early stages with no background. We were not coming in as tech savvy, polished, you know, with it kind of group. We were all there because we wanted to study African-American history and literature, which somehow had not led us to learn how to do these things just yet. But when we found these materials, and there's a whole long story about Facebook back in the day, if you can believe it. Um, but we found that we really wanted to accomplish certain kinds of things. We wanted to be able to find some more of these documents. We wanted to be able to put them together. We wanted to be able to understand how were the networks and the communities and the collectives across the conventions forming over a period of time. And so for us, it was not, hey, we'd like to now jump into some kind of shiny digital thing just for its own sake and you know, absolve the politics at the door, but really sort of trying to understand how we could use different pieces of technology to advance some of that work. And we've come a long way. And so it looks like we have our ourselves together. In the early years, boy, it must've taken us about three months of Googling things like how to make a website and stumbling around campus at the University of Delaware until a, now uh, Dr. Uh, Meg Maiman, who was a librarian at the time, said, I think maybe just try a little bit of this. And we just needed that little bit to get off and running. And I say that in part because when we started, a lot of the digital work tended to reproduce perhaps what we might say the canon of English studies, sort of largely white, largely sort of based in the early modern medieval and, and a little bit more modern periods. We didn't have a ton of kind of models for black history, culture, and literary studies in digital formats. We, of course, had things like Doc South, which I think everybody knows. Um, we, of course, had the legendary um, project on the history of Black writing uh, with Professor Dr. Mary Emma Graham. Um, there's no way that we can, I think, tell the history of this body of knowledge and field without pointing to, to Dr. Graham. Um, and we, of course, knew about a few other people who were doing this work, but really not a whole lot of people. When we started to be able to think about teaching these and sharing some of this work, we started to put together a list of projects wanting to be, you know, a bunch of us are grad students. We wanted to be responsible and do our lit review and figure out what was out there. And we had found maybe a couple at first, and then we found a few more. And by 2015, 2016, 2017, we thought we had sort of checked all the boxes and found maybe 30 or so kind of black digital projects. But of course we were being naive. Of course we were still learning with everybody else. And so just one August, and I still distinctly remember this is one of the real turning moments in our work. We put it on Twitter and said, hey, we're making this list. If we missed anything, maybe people can help us out. And wow, did black academic Twitter go to work. And I just checked this morning, it's now up to 381 entries of all kinds of projects some that we might choose to exclude, some that we might choose to highlight even more of people engaging with different kinds of black studies and digital technologies. And so I think for us, the question more often than not sort of steers away from definitions and more towards what we might imagine the opportunity of combining black studies with digital studies or environments sort of invites in terms of conversations. You know, a lot of it for us is, you know, how do we use technology in order to do something? But of course, there's a whole new kind of conversation of folks like Sophia Noble, Andre Brock, Catherine Knight Steele, um, and many others who are asking us to pay attention to the ways that structural racism and ideas about race are embedded deeply within a lot of the technologies that 
that shape our time. Um, and so we could sort of talk, I think, endlessly about this. But the part that I, the reason that I mentioned all of these things is that it was the digital project that came first and then led us to this volume as sort of fitting into, okay, we want to be able to make some of the digital work more legible and more sort of transportable in ways um, that we can sort of pick up and hold as a book. Um, there's a lot, I think, that we still have as a collective to explore. Um, this past year and a half, Gabrielle and I and many others have been here at Penn State um, starting the new Center for Black Digital Research, or Dig Black, as we call it, trying to sort of build a space where we can all start to imagine even more what this kind of work might take in, in all kinds of different forms into the future. I'm convinced that we're just going to keep learning a huge amount um, from the many, many, maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands at this point of uh, folks out there doing Black studies in smart and interesting ways, engaged with the technical digital stuff in some type of way. Um, yeah, maybe I'll leave there. That, you know, there are sister organizations that are doing this work like Adhum, right, and, um, and others. And there are so many definitions, as Jim touched upon, and I'm going to ask him actually to elaborate a little more um, about the kind of different uh, venues, the different pathways, right, and approaches and methods um, and theoretical underpinnings, which he pointed to a little bit of Black DH. But I do want to say that, you know, um, people can identify a project as Black and digital and humanities, but um, there are these questions that I think that many of us always want to pose. Are you responsible to Black communities? Um, is this a pipeline project? Our work are both archival projects, digital projects, and pipeline building projects, right? Um, do you have principles that undergird your work that actually support Black people? Are you responsible to Black legacy communities and Black cultural descendants? Um, are you advocating for Black students, for their pay equity, um, for their inclusion, for their training, for their citational um, for citational responsibility so that their work is actually named. These are some of the principles of what we consider black digital right work. The, you know, it's not just black, black as an adjective, black is a verb, right? And black is a justice verb, black is a liberation verb, right? And so it's really important to us at least that uh, we're not talking about projects that are housed at responsible to employing non-black people, right? Um, and um, and that call themselves Black Digital Projects because their content is about Black people. So, you know, I, I'm going to focus on that Black part and then throw it back, back to Jim to talk just a little bit about the work in the different kind of avenues that Kim Gallen and Jessica Marie Johnson and others have really sort of outlined um, that I know he discusses all the time. Yeah, this I think might be a, a whole hour's worth of conversation. One of the things that's been fascinating for us doing this work for so long is that we've lived through kind of different generations of discourse about what to call this work. Originally, I'm not sure that we really identified as a digital humanities project. Certainly, I don't think I thought about it in that way. It later came to mean that in part because of the work of the folks at University of Maryland at Adhume, um, who helped to really frame that conversation with that conference in 2017. Um, so shout out to all those folks, Dr. now Dr. Kevin Winstead, um, Dr. Steele and all the other folks who made that possible. We've also sort of come of age in a in a moment when people all of a sudden are starting to talk more about public humanities as a kind of community engagement. And I think the reason that we've done this work in part is because we're such a large collective and there's so many people doing so many different kinds of things. 
But really, if you start to look at some of the longer roots and trajectories of where our work comes from, I think that these things are not so surprising after all. You heard Gabrielle talk a few moments ago about the ways in which our work is so committed to, fun to fundamentally operating as a collective. And that's something that we reach all the way back to the conventions as all kinds of black social movements who took specific sort of approaches to the ways that sort of democratic practice guarding against hierarchies really come to inform both how we operate, but how we produce the knowledge that comes into these things. And so for me, a lot of the conversations right now that are happening about where is black digital humanities? How is it working? What does it look like? How does it sort of bring people in? really sends us back to a lot of the early days when Black Studies first became part of institutional settings. A lot of conversations now that we say, oh, that's public humanities, we find in much longer traditions about the responsibility of scholars and their work to contribute to Black communities, right? This is not new stuff at all, even if it's new in the grant reports and proposals that we all file. And so when we look at the work of folks like Dr. Kim Gallen, who gives us language around the kind of technologies of recovery, about the responsibility of of this work to think about how we sort of bring back histories that have been sort of abandoned or scattered or disremembered, to borrow some of Gabrielle's language, um, or Dr. Marie, Jessica Marie Johnson's work, where she really challenges us to think about the ways that the, and I should add Dr. Marissa Parman here too, about the ways that the conversion of Black, the reduction really of Black lives into data has been a form of violence that has attended our history as a, as a nation, as a sort of really world at so many different sort of phases. And so as we see this moment where all of a sudden we can do all these fancy things with data, we realize that there are some fundamental ethical questions that just aren't about, that are more than just about the sort of, you know, have we thought it through, are we being careful, but are really fundamental to the work itself and to what we can understand and how we can recover the humanity of the people in these projects, right? If we just manage to throw together some maps and graphs, I think we fail. It's the ways that that work is gonna be able to then contribute to, or even just create spaces for some of those conversations that are never gonna fit on a college campus. And frankly, never have, and probably never will, at least in the ways that make sense to us. And in terms of, you know, groups of people whose experiences and, and such have not exactly been a part of, you know, historical uh, discussions, especially, are the lives of, of Black women. And so um, throughout the volume, y'all emphasize the key role Black women played throughout the convention's movement. In previous scholarship about the movement, um, why were Black women's roles so well, circumscribed? Know, histories often follow historical records, and the records of the convention movement, um, at least the minutes, anonymize and erase women's expertise, their infrastructure building, and their contributions. And so uh, I had I had written a book uh, about reading Black women in the 19th century, but when I assigned this in that in that famous class that ended up in Harper's Ferry, or at least famous to us, that ended up in Harper's Ferry, out of which this um, project, the Color Conventions Project, was founded, uh, two central questions got asked. Jim asked, um, "Why are we doing this on a commercial site on Facebook?" Which had some really interesting plugins to show um, that would allow us to illustrate Black networks. Let's just move it over to um, uh, uh, an, an academic site or, or, or a site that we can manage. And, um, and, and that's when the project was born. And Sarah Patterson asked, um, just because men are uh, predominantly represented as the delegates in this history, why are we not asking question about, questions about women's roles? 
And um, all I could say to that was Ashe and Amen. And so we baked into the work that we do memos of understanding for our North American teaching partners. We baked this into the CFP as well, that, um, that when people are teaching the Color Conventions Project, that they attend to the women who were associated with the names that appear in the records. And through doing that, we found out a lot about uh, the infrastructure that they built, about the work that they did, about what it means um, that as Psyche Williams Forsen's essay and Sam and Samantha Devira's exhibit work um, both bring up. How is it that when people came into these cities, streamed into these cities, we're talking about hundreds of delegates, hundreds and hundreds of more attendees, thousands attending the speeches um, that occurred in the evenings during these multi-day gatherings, who created the infrastructure that made that possible? How did that work? And Psyche williams Forson asked that question about um, housing and about um, boarding houses and where people stayed and what they ate. Jim can also talk about the work that the Color Conventions Project has done and what and that he's shepherded to document all the mentions of women and the work of our partners um, as they take up some of the records that we've created. But Black organizing and politics sit at the core of the Color Conventions Movement Edited Collection. And that, of course, always has to do with women and women's organizing. And that's both a part of us wanting to get the full picture, but I would also argue, and I think I can get a lot of votes within our group, that it makes the work that we do so much richer and so much more rigorous even, that having to attend not just to the famous faces, we can all find easy ways to connect with Frederick Douglass, um, Richard Allen, right? The A-listers of the Black 19th century. But when we push ourselves and our partners to do the work of looking into all of the people who were coming to these conventions, including and especially the Black women. We barely even started to talk about the children who are often part of these movements. Gabrielle and others have started to talk about the multiple generations that fit into these things. Um, being able to understand the ways that women participated in these is a real challenge to us, but it's such a productive one. And so starting around, gosh, 2014, 2015, we were building an index of all of the names that we could find in the conventions because we wanted to study them and see how the social networks had developed. And as we did that, we felt like we had made some progress. We got up to three, four or 5,000 names of, of delegates. And then we did the math and realized that probably about 0.5% of those names were people that we might guess were women. This obviously is not the full story. It's not even close to the full story. And so as part of that, we instituted the MOUs where we required our teaching partners to assign their students. And that's been so hugely generative but we also had some scarce mentions in the minutes themselves. Sometimes it might say something like the ladies of Harrisburg, or it might say maybe one or two names and then the ladies auxiliary of Albany. And as we paid attention to these, we thought, okay, let's, let's gather them together. This is some of the affordances that our project has, has been able to benefit from. And let's just see what's in the minutes themselves. And so we're up to about 150, 160 or so mentions of women's names. You can find them on our site. Um, at colorconventions.org, I guess we should say at some point. And what we've begun to learn from these things is a whole bunch of things. In part, there are the notable women, right? Look at the 1869 convention when the great Marianne Shedd Carey stands up and says, 
nobody put women's rights and roles onto the agenda for this convention. So we're just going to do it ourselves. And we've begun preparing a report on the rights of women. And I think it's not in the minutes, but everybody, I'm guessing in the hall said, yeah, nobody's going to try and take her on that particular topic. And so it gets pushed into the minutes themselves. Um, there are also a lot of women who, for various reasons, we suspect might have been careful about the ways that their names were being represented in the minutes themselves, knowing that that was really only one of the very relatively flat ways that the conventions and their sort of conversations were going to be circulated, that the print record was just a tiny part of that larger thing. And so they were strategic about the ways in which they would put their names into these documents in print to circulate. And that's, I think, a conversation that's really opened up for us when I talk about how the research improves and expands in so many ways, because it helps us to realize that the minutes of these conventions are not objective, neutral records of what was said and done at these conventions. They were really, really carefully prepared. Collective writing, as Gabrielle has written about in her essay for this book, um, where they would do things like debate the words. Do we add this word? Do we take that word down? And it sort of kind of looks like sort of parliamentary proceedings, something you might see in Congress. But we also think about it as a part of the kind of African-American literary tradition, sort of writing collectively and thinking so carefully about the kind of self-representation that goes into these documents. And they're so, so careful, right? The 1843 famous debate about Henry Holland Granite's speech, sort of calling on enslaved people to rise up, it loses by a single vote. And they spend the whole convention debating about whether or not they want to print these minutes. And oftentimes it gets framed as this debate between Frederick Douglass and Henry Holland Garnett, because we're comfortable sort of framing Black history as just kind of two famous men's sort of opposing viewpoints. And it's actually much more complicated. And there's all kinds of sort of debates between people who say, I live within eyesight of the state of Kentucky. I live in Philadelphia, where I see people coming all the time. I live in New York, where there are you know, kidnappers in the harbors all the time. I'm going to be maybe strategic about the ways that I represent different parts of these things. And so it really helps us, I think, to see not just in those conventions, but at all of the conventions, that the proceedings are these cultural documents or a kind of communal space where people let are me thinking jump in. and strategizing. Yeah, together. let me jump in I'm sure right Gabrielle there so because more. the story of the Garnett Address, which we often call Garnett's Address, and we teach as if it wasn't embedded both in the 43 and in the 1847 national conventions, which he does not publish. And this is all in Derek Spire's essay, but it's also some, you know, some of the questions that we've really been grappling with as scholars for many years, um, are not embedded again in the 43 and the 47 convention. We just teach it again as Garnett's address. But he decides not to publish it because he wants the imprimatur of the convention itself, right? In addition to that, Derek Spires points out that the one person that he actually attributes as a co-author, even though we see it authored in committee, as so many addresses are, right, authored in committee, collective writing is one of the real lessons and takeaways that it is one of the foundational ways that if we account for conventions as, a, as, as important in Black political organizing, how it overlaps with Black subjectivity and Black rights, and Black authorship is that it is not the individual story of slave narratives, but the collective writing that comes out of addresses that ends up being one of the predominant patterns of Black rhetoric and Black organizing methodology, right? But 
the person that he um, attributes that speech to isn't just the collective that debates it and then rewrites it in committee. It's Julia Garnett, right? And so when we start to think about the ways in which women really are anonymized, right, as we move to the sort of individual delegate leader history, rather than, again, to the infrastructures that are created, that we see a real distinction um, in the kind of masculinist um, politics of the convention movement itself. Moving methodologically, which is what Psyche Williams Forson's essay really asks us to do, not just focusing on the podium and the delegates and the leaders who speak there, and not just moving back to the pews, which are the attendees and the participants, but moving back to a new definition of what a convention means, not something that starts at the moment you walk into a hall and ends when the meeting ends, right, Um, four days later, three days later, but instead thinking about the travel to the place, the places where they sat during lunches and meals. This involves women and children, right? The places where they slept and and ate. The infrastructure that one needs to create, that Black people created all over North America where these conventions were held, right? In order to um, make space for uh, meetings that are this large and that are multi-day involved Black infrastructure builders. And only when it has to do with women, right, is infrastructure um, diminished, right? When men are building infrastructure, when they're doing fundraising, it's a power position, right? When women are doing it, it gets depreciated. So I think we need to think about the 19th century, and clearly my dog thinks this too, because he's barking in agreement in the background, that clearly we need to think about what it means for women to be the spine, Black women to be the spine um, and the skin in so many ways of Black political gatherings. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and also one of the things that i think about to to y'all's point is just thinking about you know the the collective addresses and thinking about how really important it is that we think also about traditions of uh you know black oratory and black and, and so i think also about their traditions of like you know black mobility Right. I think about uh, Dr. Uh, Pryor's work, um, uh, Colored Travelers, and thinking about like, we know what was going on in 1843. We know what was going on, you know, in the pre and and the post 
uh, well, the 1850 uh, version of the Fugitive Slave Law. And so I, I definitely would love to hear y'all speak also about the way mobility worked as well. And so, uh, uh, Dr. Foreman, can, can you uh, pick, all, up, pick that up? First of all, shout out to Dr. Breyer's work, right, which literally um, uh, informed some of the work that um, I do in the introduction. So we, we thank her for, for, for that really important book. Um, one of my favorite stories, which brings the question about gender and women together with this question of Black mobility, is when... Um, Sidna Francis and Abner Francis are traveling together um, to a national convention. And, um, but that's not the way it shows up in the records. It shows up as Abner Francis um, traveling to this convention with his quote unquote, his lady, right? Um, and um, so she's totally anonymous in the record. And we need to ask these questions, right? How many people are actually coming to the convention with their partners? So, um, I, I'm trying to figure out who his lady is. And they're coming on a train and they get kicked out of um, the first class car. And so they go to the convention and, um, and they bring the president of the convention back uh, to the train depot. Um, and Frederick Douglass, the president, and Abner Francis and Sidna Francis try to hold um, the, uh, the, the, the person who... Um, threw them off of the, excuse me, threw them out of the first class uh, train accountable. And they name him in the actual convention record. So they call out, right, the, the train attendant who has been discriminating against them um, in the actual record. So here you see mobility and segregation and Black dignity, right, all coming together, informing people's experience and advocacy as they actually reach the conventions themselves, right? So talk about a live issue, right? But at the same time, um, we get back to why it's important that we had MOUs. So I look up Abner, Francis, and wife. I Google it, right? First thing I do is I Google it before I go do like 20 hours of research, right? And up um, comes a description, a bio on our own website done by one of our teaching partners. And it says, Sidna Francis was the head of the anti-slavery, the Women's Anti-Slavery Society in her town. She was active as a writer and as a speaker and as a reformer. And there is the biography of Sidna Francis. So here she, like Julia Garnett, is bringing her expertise and her activism, right, to the convention movement but that is anonymized in the records. One of the things I actually think we have not grappled with and that we as a field and we as a project need to grapple more significantly with is why women are anonymized and erased so significantly here. They're not in the immigration movement, right? So the immigration um, convention is held and we have it on our, um, on our site um, in 54. And Mary Bibb is the, is the, vice, I think the vice president of that convention. And she's just lost Henry Bibb, her partner, and she's an editor like Marianne Shad Carey, right? Um, but there's a slightly different leadership there, including Martin Delaney, and women are welcome as leaders. They don't have to kind of debate it right there. Um, and, um, and in anti-slavery societies, um, some black, when black women are allowed, when black people are allowed, right, to, to, to be at the fore, 
Black women are also there. So why? Why not in conventions? Now, this might have a little to do, although it's established in the antebellum period, about the fact that this goes through Reconstruction, right? It goes through post-Reconstruction, where everybody's endangered. And we can talk about that later if we have time. Most definitely. I'm, I'm sure. I'm definitely sure we'll, we'll get to the post-bellum ones especially. Um, and so with that, uh, Black organizing and Black politics, as y'all definitely um, just, just showed, um, sit at the core of the Color Conventions movement edited volume. Um, how can color conventions and their 19th century participants inform 21st century organizers and activists about how to navigate today's white supremacist world? Yeah, this is, I think, another one of those questions we could have a whole hour talking about, Adam. <laughs> the Definitely. conventions really for us are a, a kind of textbook in so many ways because they tried so many different ways to approach the work. The thing that shows up again and again and again in the conventions is a real commitment to the process, to democratic practice, to being careful about representation that, frankly, when we think about the historical context sometimes, is much more radical than it might seem on the page. To think about the delegates at the 1840 Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania Convention, or the 1853 National Convention, who are getting together and proposing resolutions, but then voting on them, working through the process with the kind of commitment to sort of equal representation in the direct shadow of the revoking of civil rights, of the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act, of so many different sort of examples of places where rights are being both constricted and somehow disrupted. And then we turn around to the conventions and they're spending all of their time talking about what the business committee or the rules committee, oftentimes is what they were called, is going to propose is the order for speaking. And sometimes you would even see people in the later conventions actually kind of have some jokes at their expense and say, well, you're just kind of here for the pomp and circumstance. But in those sort of careful conversations about these, and you can read more about this in Dr. Erica Ball's great essay for this volume, and there's an exhibit attached to that as well about the kind of rites and rituals, we can see that there's a kind of embodied practice of democracy, of really a kind of different sense of politics than the one everywhere outside of the convention hall, it seems. And so when we think about what the conventions might offer, and we've gotten asked a couple of times in some of these conversations, you know, what are the kind of latter-day versions of the conventions? And I think it really is not just the spaces that we can sort of point direct lineages to, things like Black Lives Matter, Civil Rights Movement, lots of different work, but to the places where Black activists and Black organizing communities are committed to a kind of democratic practice. That I think that is really the space where a lot of the spirit of the conventions lives on. Um, and we, I think even some of the current examples of that are the work around sort of prison abolition and the, really the kind of commitment to process in a lot of those spaces. Um, that for me mirrors a lot of the ways that the conventions develop over time, right? I think one of the things that we're still learning to sort of understand and talk about is how the conventions evolve over its 70 year history. It's a big history. It happens in a lot of different places. You won't find anybody who feels comfortable doing an easy summary of all the things that happened just because we're not just talking about sort of one linear movement. We're talking about something that connects some of the most dramatic events across the 19th century in the United States and into Canada. Um, and so one of the things that we really see develop over the course of the conventions 
is a move really actively against the kind of liberal sentimentality that animates a lot of abolitionist discourse to thinking much more about the ways that black activists might build institutions, right? I think I, we actually see a lot of this in our moment today. At the 1847 and 1848 conventions, they're talking about founding the national press. They're talking about founding banks and schools and manual colleges, right? There's a kind of energy about let's start and build something in so many of these conventions that we see at so many different moments in the years after the Civil War, 1865 and 1866, there are more conventions held across the South and some in the North and in the West than in the entire antebellum period. And in almost all of these, more often than not, they're debating about trying to shape the state constitutions and a lot of that complicated history, but there's always some conversation about starting schools, about building resources for people to lean on. And those are really, really important for them to imagine not just as a kind of, okay, there's immediate needs, but there's a kind of radical sort of sense of black futures that I think fits into saying things like six months ago, legal shadow slavery was the law of the land. And now we're gonna plan for schools and training teachers and printing a newspaper and circulating conversations across those things. That's a radical thing. I think we miss that a lot because it seems so kind of matter of course, because so many people were so committed to doing it, but it was actually a really radical thing that we see sometimes even in the conventions that didn't happen, right? One of the things that we can even point to is things like the convention in Baltimore in 1852, the only convention that was held in a Southern state before the Civil War almost doesn't happen because there's racial violence. People come and attack the delegates on the first day of the convention. Somebody winds up dying later. Um, there's a convention, national convention supposed to be held in 1841-ish uh, that never comes to pass in part because there's race riots um, in the cities that was supposed to host it. So there's a lot of these kinds of conversations that develop over the course of the history. And I'll pass the mic to Gabrielle in just a second. But before I do, I wanna point folks to the speech that Frederick Douglass gives. As much as we try and decenter some of these voices, some of them are going to conventions for 50 years. And so here we are. Uh, and at the speech in 1883, it's a national speech. It's a fascinating one. I'm trying to finish my essay about it, about all the things that we've learned about it. Douglas comes and says, basically, why hold a color convention? Why does it matter now that black politicians have started to become a part of the Republican Party? Now that Reconstruction promised a bunch of things that may or may not or definitely failed to come to fruition. And he says, you know, things like, it, it was said they were once slaves, and here I'm quoting, they are now free, so why then do they hold color conventions and insist upon keeping up the color line between themselves and their fellow countrymen? And he goes on to explain that there are power in numbers and in union because the voice of a whole people oppressed by a common injustice is far more likely to command attention and exert an influence, right? And that's the most famous person maybe in the United States at the podium of the color convention saying, the thing that's important here is not my singular voice, but the voice of all of us speaking together is gonna to have a much greater command. And I think that's one of the lessons that the conventions really generate over the decades. Gabrielle, I should pass the mic to you now. I, I mean, I just love that speech. Um, and, and I also talk about it in, um, in talks that I give um, because he, you know, he also really does address um, All Lives Matter, um, you know, and directly he says, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, let's see if I can get to it rather than um, trying to ad lib Douglas. You should always know better than to ad lib Douglas. Um, go ahead. He says, no, no, uh, go ahead. 
You got it. You got it in front of you. He says the practical life of the practical construct construction of American life is a convention against us. And so when we're in the position of white people as the oppressees and they are the oppressees, oppressors, excuse me, right? I'm sorry. Um, go ahead, Jim. Then they can hold conventions and we won't have any complaints to make. It's such a great kind of taking apart. We really should we have read have it. We do have a video of it. We created a video of it. Try so when people are looking, you know, for a speech besides the powerful What to the Slave is the 4th of July, we have a wonderful actor who um, who is doing this extraordinarily powerful speech that comes in his 40th year, Douglas's 40th year of attending convention. So we should think really about what does it mean for Black people to meet together, to gather together, to think together. Um, one of the things that I think the lessons this um, uh, gives us is that Black people can be very, very focused and um, on Black liberation. Um, and so, uh, um, but the the tactics and the strategies can be debated even when the objective is very, um, we're united about the objective. So we can be united about an objective but we should have room and the convention movement allows this allows us to do this and shows how it is done to have different strategies and even more importantly the strategy is to meet together one of the strategies is to meet together in conventions but the tactics are debated right fear you know in fierce ways oftentimes and those distinctions we are a, i don't need to say this to this audience but we are a heterogeneous a heterogeneous people we are allowed and deserved to, to have different opinions, right? To, uh, to come at things different ways, even as we come together for an objective about black liberation itself, right? And the convention movement tells us this. The other thing too, that the project is deeply committed to is not to be able to answer the question that you posed, right? Which is how can black organizers find the convention movement and the convention records and the exhibits, right, useful? this book useful. We want to hear from organizers. We want to work with organizers who can tell us that, right? So black folks who are in, and, and there are loads of people, um, you know, LA can, um, lots of, lots of black organizers who are deeply invested in history, right? That's, that has been a tenant of black organizing. And they are the people as they apply these principles who can really speak back to, to, to us. Um, the activist scholars need to speak to the scholar activists, Right. Because sometimes we confuse um, the fact that there are, you know, those roles. Right. It matters which comes first, at least in my humble opinion. I think we need to be humble um, about that, um, too. And speaking to, um, you know, misconceptions and kind of like focus, um, I I think it's an important time to also talk about the differences. And y'all had kind of brushed on this a little bit before. So. I'm interested to know what what the full answer would be, but um, what are some of the biggest uh, misconceptions you have encountered regarding the differences between the abolitionist slash anti-slavery movements and the colored convention movement? You know, it's interesting because people often confuse um, movements that um, have similar or they think have similar goals. so the end of slavery is not the same as black liberation, black dignity, um, full black rights. And the convention movement from its very beginning is interested and invested deeply 
in um, addressing uh, uh, slavery. Uh, so many of the people who uh, become leaders, Garnett, Douglas, Jermaine Logan, um, are folks who uh, have liberated themselves um, from slavery. Um, that said, um, they're also deeply invested in economic justice and labor justice and um, access to a full array of jobs um, and to dignity while they're on those jobs. And we should not mistake Douglas's convention as anything but also, I mean, excuse me, Douglas's um, 1845 narrative and the section where he talks about being attacked, right, when um, by fellow laborers as anything but about a protest about labor. And that's actualized in the conventions, right? Um, that's not about just, you know, his mistress putting a stake on his eye when he comes back, right, from being beaten on the job. That's also about access to Black jobs. We see this in, um, in uh, novels like Gary's and Their Friends, right? Over and over again, this question about Black labor becomes central, and it is central, central in the conventions. Black educational justice, central to the conventions, right? Questions about Black mobility, central to the conventions. So you have this Black political rights, voting rights, jury rights, freedom from state-sanctioned violence, right? These are the issues that animate organizers and activists and scholars and Black families and our uncles and our cousins right? You know, um, all day long, every day. So these kinds of, except when we're having joyful reunions and happy moments, which we also have because we are a full complete people. So, um, but this kind of question about the full spectrum of Black rights is outside of anti-slavery, right? Which is often marked by paternalism, condescension, control. Um, it's also important to understand that the convention movement starts in 1830, which is before the beginning of the antebellum anti-slavery movement that we associate with Garrison. It's before the beginning of the American Anti-Slavery Society, the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, the New England Anti-Slavery Society, um, so that Black people are meeting in concert. And I think this is the, one of the really big misconceptions is that, you know, when I've said this before, when Douglas's, when David Blight's um, uh, momentous, uh, monumental um, biography of, of um, Frederick Douglass came out, the New York Times, or maybe it was the New Yorker, um, reviewed it and starts talking about all the white people who influenced him, right? You know, all, loads of them, doesn't mention black people. Um, Carla Peterson's essay speaks about the influence um, that, um, that Douglas um, really was in concert and was in thinking, right, with Black people over 40 years, right? And, and so when we start to think about these circuits of exchange, when we start talking about the babies who were named after Black organizers, right, so, um, and, and literally loads of them um, are named after um, uh, Pennington, Julia, Julia Pennington, right, you know, um, is the name of one of the children, right? And um, and after Van Rensselaer and um, and all these black activists, uh, say, I mean, also Haitian activists, right? Um, and um, and revolutionaries like Cinque, right, show up in the in the pantheon um, of names. Um, but we really need to think about the ways in which people were deeply connected over years. And abolitionists, abolition. Um, 
has overshadowed um, so much of the Black-led organizing that was done, and that lasted for 30, 35 years after anti-slavery was over. So that's the other thing I think that's deeply important that Jim um, touched on before, that the convention movement really explodes right after the Civil War as anti-slavery is coming to an end. We need more work on what happens um, in relationship to and in the conventions that happen after the Civil War. This is another, and that also has to do with the periodization, right, um, of the volumes, the edited collections that until the Colored Convention Project Online um, began to print for free um, so many of the conventions, which we're still looking for, by the way, there's a lot that have not been right found and added to the collection there. The edited collections um, by George Walker and Philip Foner and, um, and Bell, um, Howard Holman Bell, um, they ended at the end of the Civil War as if they were following right the, the anti-slavery periodization instead of it expanding. We should say that um, that um, Philip Foner um, and, um, and and George Walker also had one volume that went to 1870. Jim, thank you for finding that originally, um, and had planned several others. And we sent a researcher, um, Nathan Nikolic, who's now a graduate student, um, over to um, NYU's labor history to look through Philip Foner's papers, and we found the table of contents. And that's one way that we created the list, right, of the postbellum convention. So we want to honor the people who have did the work before us um, and, um, and, and thank them um, as particularly the Foner family, which gave us permission to actually um, reprint and use so much of their work on the convention site as well. Jim, did you want to add to that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Adam. And, oh, yeah. I just, I think to, to riff a little on that, we we had to sort of break out of that mindset ourselves in some ways. Not that we confused the topics and conversations in the abolition movement for what was happening in the conventions, but that even our own understanding of the timeline of the conventions was still based on that so much that when we started to build out the digital project, we built everything out for the first few years on the presumption, which turned out not to be true, that the whole long print history and archives of the color conventions were going to look like the period from 1830 to 1859. And that wasn't even close to true. And so a lot of the work that has really started to be generated by the many people who are helping to gather all of these documents and things together is contending with just the sheer heterogeneity of organizing methods through all kinds of sort of print publications, minutes, proceedings, letter writing, um, and all the kind of ways that that sort of fed into other kinds um, of places after the Civil War specifically, so that any kind of generalization based on the first 30 years is only setting itself up to be complicated, shall we say. And it's also like, you know, all, both of y'all, like, this. I'm, I'm just, you know, just just always learning, always learning with y'all. And so this is, this is always fun um, being, being in conversation with y'all because y'all, for, for any graduate students who are doing comps, you know, anytime soon, you just provided an important way to add the the color conventions uh, movement book into comps. If for anyone who's writing about you know nineteenth century black history or politics, uh, 
you know, and so so that's actually really important because it also takes me to um, that moment where uh, Garrison ends the Liberator in 1865, and folks are like, "You think it's done? You think it's over?" Right? Then you see, was it was it? I think uh, six or seven years later, with uh, the the Cuban um, uh, uh, anti-slavery folks that were in it was a Cooper Union or somewhere in New York, um, I believe, and and so it just makes you think that. Um, you, you see how you can kind of play with that methodology and, and that 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 kind of like that temporal form to also say like y'all do we the legacy continues because the struggle continues and so um so 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 thank y'all so much for that and it also brings up a good point uh, uh, Dr. Casey yeah I, I think your way of framing that I, I find so generative um. One of the things that we also talk a little bit about in the book, but that I think is going to be the subject of a lot more conversations, and I hope a lot more graduate student work especially, is that there is a role of the imagination in the scholarship that I think limits the conventions just to a smaller set of, of topics of how do we you know, fight against slavery? How do we protect ourselves from state violence? And I think that's really the sort of call to action to go look at so many of these conventions each one of the chapters, especially the chapters in the book that talk about reconstruction periods, to me felt like somehow we just crammed an abstract for a whole book series into 20 or 25 pages or so. You know, just being able to go look at the documents, spend some time with them. There's so many things happened that so, in so many of these conventions that there's so much kind of rich stuff happening that no, we haven't had a chance to talk about. You know, a lot of the folks on the on the CCP, we gather a lot of the stuff. So, you know, it's like standing by the side of a a big river or something. We see the stuff go rushing past. And there's tons of stuff, you know, look at the California conventions, look at the Iowa conventions. We just learned thanks to the work of our partners at the University of Iowa that there were what, eight conventions across the reconstruction and later periods. Texas had at least 12 or 13. And I'm going to be shocked if there aren't more that we don't have yet on the books. And just being able to go into those documents, sit down, read them through, and being able to think about how they really do expand what we can imagine as being a part of these conversations. And that I think is really gonna be the place where we, we feel like we're making progress on getting a digital collection together on the sort of scholarship side of things. I think we are really just beginning for exactly that reason. We really have to sort of create a whole, I think new universe of, of being able to imagine all of these things fitting together in so many ways. Yeah, and, uh, Dr. Foreman, did you have uh... Like, you, see, you look, you look, you look, yeah, you look like you're ready to say something your, real, um, real dumb, question about as you always the do. Anti-slavery in Cuba convention that Henry Highland Garnett um, was uh, the, the, the co-president of um, that was held in Cooper Union in, uh, I believe it's 73, but my dates aren't always perfect, um, really reminds me to talk a little bit about the transnationalist, um, not only um the transnationalist push of this convention, uh, or excuse me, of the convention movement itself. So not only are they being held all over North America, um, we have data visualizations that show people who are um, coming from various places, but also going to right various places. So in 1830, the first convention, um, which is held at, Be at Mother Bethel in Philadelphia, Richard Allen is actually in a moment where he's really thinking about emigration. So you asked this question about organizing. 
um, and um, and the political import and what we can learn from the convention movement. And, and I responded by saying that there's really um, a way in which heterogeneity of thought is really important. The debate around emigration, right, about whether or not Black people should leave a country which refuses decade after decade, right, um, moment after moment, initiative after initiative to grant us full rights, full political rights, full voting rights, right, freedom on the streets from state-sanctioned violence when we are literally just doing the thing that other um, citizens do, um, uh, really has people debating for so many years from Richard Allen to um, to to um, Henry McNeil Turner at the very end of the the movement and his great 1895 convention, right, with 500 delegates, 500 delegates, and they're debating questions of reparations in those last conventions and whether or not we should leave the country. And the question of Haiti, of Cuba, right, um, of of um, uh, places in Africa to return to, um, not only Liberia. Um, they become central to this ongoing running question through the movement itself. And when we just look at anti-slavery, right, which is almost always um, anti-colonizationist, when we, when, we, when we think about this through white institutions, right, the anti-colonization society, um, and not the anti-colonization um, organizations that are um, chaired by people like Henry Heinlein Garnett and others, but the ones that are really meant to uh, disenfranchise Black citizens and to rid the, the nation of, uh, of Black presence. When, again, we, we um, look at this through the focus and the portal of white institutional authority, um, we do not give enough credence um, to the questions of Black global citizenship that the convention movement and um, people like David Walker articulate so fully. And so I just wanted to at least mention that. That's another place where we need to see much more work coming out in the convention. So we want to shard, you know, shout out Brandon Bird, Marlene Doubt, right? All of the people who are uh, bringing those 19th century interconnections um, to the fore in their just fabulous work that allows us to be in conversation with them um, eventually. All of which is to say, we really want to read some dissertations on things like the conventions in the Caribbean, the conventions in places like Florida and the, the Southwest and the Southeast. There's so much of that work to be done that I think is just waiting for people to get to it. And when you go start doing that work, give us a holler because we want to be able to follow along on the ride too. And so what y'all brought up reminded me of something that I had done um, thinking about, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, John... Uh, was a John Willis uh, Menard, um, who, you know, was one of the early, early or earliest black, I've, you know, there's all these first, you always got to, you know, he was one of the first, right, in in late 1860s. Um, but in, in, in particular, and, and I actually got this from a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Adam Thomas down in Western Carolina, who's been doing some work on, on Menard, to say that um, if you look at you know, uh, we, we always talk about uh, Lincoln and what he was discussing in the White House about um, in uh, talking about uh, not em necessarily uh, immigration, but, you know, colonization of, of, of black folks during the Civil War. And he actually if I'm if I get this story correctly, he actually empowered Menard to actually go down to uh, Haiti 
in the during actually the Civil War for him to actually kind of like in a way kind of like site visit, right? And so that is actually happening during the Civil War, and then um, in the it was the um, eighteen sixty nine uh, National Co- Convention of uh, the Colored Men of America held in D.C. where he actually. Um, I believe it was that one. It was either that one or no, no, no. I'm sorry. It was the colored national labor convention that was in DC the same year. Um, and he actually discusses, uh, women's suffrage and, and as a reason why he was, uh, so disconcerted with the, 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 the convention going on right there. And, you know, it, it, he, he's just one of those fascinating figures. Um, and, like I, I just think that the dude is is interesting, and then he also is a part of Florida politics in the eighteen seventies and the eighteen eighties. You know, he, he's just a fat. You know, and he knew uh, the the Gibbs family as well, and so it's just you know, and that connects to to Florida A and M uh, University and uh, Gibbs High School, I believe in uh, Saint Petersburg. Um, as well. And so uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, that is. And so it's just, you know, the the different connections here um, that uh, makes me remember and ex- even more excited to finish comps or not comps, but finish this proposal so I can take a breath by doing a little doing doing some of the exhibit work that I'm really excited about. So uh, 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 Kelly Coles, I, I'm, I'm a I'm a reply to that email. So so, yeah, One just all wet. That, um, uh, so <laughs> Adam's exhibit illustrates um which is in the processing phase right now so look for it y'all um on um on florida conventions um where he discovered several additional florida conventions that we did not know about um is um the the role of conventions in black institution building um and we'll get to this i think i hope in in relationship to black newspapers in a minute but um Really, uh, black institutions like Talladega and FAMU, right, are thought about um, in um, black convention organizing. And FAMU is um, is um, created not only by Jonathan Gibbs, who is one of the first black superintendents of schools in the postbellum period. Is the imagine this, y'all? Right, he is the superintendent of schools in Florida, uh, Florida, right. Um, for, for many years, um, and his son um, becomes a, a state senator, if I'm getting this correct, a state legislature, and the two of them are responsible in many ways for FAMU. So you know, at this convention culture, but the conventions themselves, Talladega comes out of a convention where newly um, freed um, people come together literally months after the end of the Civil War. Um, and discuss and then buy the property and then um, uh, come up with support from the American Missionary Association in order to found Talladega College itself. And that comes directly from the convention. And the other thing, right, and this is even a way to broaden it out even further to like different um, uh, experiences of Black folks in Florida, Menard was actually... John uh, was a Thomas Gibbs's uh, father-in-law, right? And if you think about the fact that in 1884, when this color convention comes out, this is also in a period that, right, you see the the creation of FAMU on the horizon. Um, 
directly through this convention. And the and the other interesting thing is Jacksonville was, I believe, supposed to be the location of what became FAMU, right? Which, if you think about Jacksonville, is also the place in terms of a city where Douglas actually goes, right? This is the one thing I did find out from uh, from uh, Blight's biography was James Walden Johnson sees Douglas as a kid, which if you trying to kind of think about the timeline here, which it would have been around the time, not not too long. It would have been, you know, that time from. And we also know him and, and Rosamond Johnson hearkening to uh, Dr. Amani Perry's work on, on the Black National Anthem. Right. So, so you see the connections from the 19th to the 20th that can bring about, right, the, the color conventions movement. Um, and, and in particular, this 1884 uh, convention in uh, Gainesville, Florida. Um, and so so it's just, you know, remarkable seeing all the connections um, going on here. Um, and so in the time that we have here, I know, uh, Dr. Former, you had actually asked, a qu- you, you, you uh, had referenced um, the particular question about the, the role of Black press. So I'm, I'm going to insert it here. So can you tell us about the role the Black press actually played um, during um, the color conventions uh, movement? Dr. Foreman, you want to lead us off? All right, she's shaking her head. The overlap between the conventions and the press is a really long and interesting and growing story. I'd send folks at least first to Benjamin Fagan's essay in this chapter, where he traces the ways that both the conventions and the newspapers were engaged in debates about what it meant to claim a uh, sort of mantle of national representation for Black communities before the Civil War. Um, there's lots of kind of interesting sort of back and forth about the ways that people conceptualize those together. On a practical level, it was hard to find a convention without a Black newspaper and vice versa. The conventions all over the place were involved in doing things like fundraising, endorsing Black newspapers as their official organ. And oftentimes it was those communities that would help to fundraise or found and sustain a lot of Black newspapers. For example, in 1853 in Ohio, the delegates realized that they need a voice to speak back against the kind of newspapers that are really sort of winding up the, the shall we say, right-wing uh, racist machine. And so they take up a collection and decide to start a newspaper called The Alien American. The conventions out in California do the same thing. They say, we're here, we're fighting for the right to a fair trial and the right to give legal testimony. And as part of that, we need to be able to speak through the press. And so they start up a collection and start a whole series of newspapers out in Sacramento and San Francisco. And as we start to piece together some of these connections, this is something we've really learned since we started to see these sort of larger collections come together, is that the ways of approaching the organizing of a convention and the ways that people would put together in a newspaper oftentimes are so interspersed about the ways that we understand um, how the, these sort of collective bodies come together. And there's a lot of, I think, kind of lessons about how organizing might work and the ways that they do sort of bring that expertise about newspapers into the convention spaces. One of the great examples is in the antebellum conventions of 1853, where there are, what, 20 something newspaper editors in the room, and it totally shapes how they try to respond to the fugitive slave law. After the Civil War comes and ends, there are so many Black newspapers, if 
anybody else is still looking for dissertation ideas to a good home, book ideas, book series to a good home. There's so many black newspapers of the Civil War that we just haven't even put eyes to in a long time. There's a, well, there's a real need for collective work there. And as we see those newspapers really grow after the Civil War, we see them starting to become instrumental, not just in helping to support conventions, but as a kind of mouthpiece in the conventions. Doesn't mean they always agree. In fact, sometimes, especially in times like 1883, there's fierce disagreements where newspapers are in a kind of battle with each other about where to hold a convention, what conventions should talk about, um, who should be involved. Um, and there are so many of these kind of stories that I think we still have, have left to put together. But the larger lesson, I think, for a lot of them, too, is that the conventions oftentimes would name a set of objectives, usually political goals. We want voting rights. We want better funding for schools. We want to be free from state violence. But in the kind of cauldron of those conventions, there would be so many other things that would come out of it, that the direct sort of named explicit objectives of a particular convention were by far not even close to the longer results that would come out of those. And so we see when newspapers would come together, or we were just talking about some of the colleges or some of the sort of political party organizing after the Civil War, so many of those communities, which might seem to just spring up in those moments, we can actually trace back into the conventions and realize, for example, that a lot of the elected officials in the Reconstruction South have been going to conventions in the state of Ohio before the Civil War for decades together, right? Or had been traveling to these conventions together, getting to know each other, and then having these relationships where they could then start to build all these institutions. And so there's a kind of nonlinear quality, a kind of way that putting people together in a space means that some things might happen immediately, but other things might happen in a kind of longer view um, that are so, so important to be able to understand because they're collective, even if they don't necessarily manifest that way. Gabrielle, I know, can, can add a lot about anything of the, that I just said, but really, I think we're getting to the point in the conversation where we're just starting to post wanted ads uh, for so much of the scholarship to be done, too. Jim is writing the book about black the Black press, and I, I think that I'll, I'll let all of that speak for itself there. And in one of our uh, last questions that we have here, um, you know, the importance of teachers, um, because really, you know, they're, you know, just such an important group of people. And, you know, just, you know, you, know, you look at some of uh, the work of folks like uh, uh, Dr. Hillary Green and, you know, the, the, the work of um, folks like uh, uh, Dr., Dr. Crystal Webster as well in, in the antebellum era. Um, and uh, some of the work that uh, I believe um, the Black Teaching Art, the Black Teacher Archive that uh, Dr. Jarvis Givens and Dr. Armani Perry um, are, are uh, doing, uh, creating, you know, in in a way that I, I believe they're going to have the digital component as well. So there's just so much good work um, going on here. And so I'm actually very interested, um, you know, considering the de uh, the breadth and the depth of the subject matter and the geographic locations involved in the editive volume. I wonder how you both imagine teachers at all levels, how they can incorporate your edited volume into their classroom. This is such classrooms. a great question. I'm, I'm so glad that you shouted out Jarvis Givens and the work of so many others who are doing work on um, on teachers um, and the liberation um, and, and the fugitive right work of, um, of liberation politics that has happened in black classrooms and um, for so many, many years. Um, we've put together uh, exhibits, um, and the exhibits now, the, the exhibits that accompany this, the essays in this book, 
also have a curriculum that is attached to it, both for K through 12 and um, for college students and AP students. Um, so you can go to colorconventions.org, um, then choose exhibits, and then the teaching tab is there. And soon we'll be aggregating that all into one space so you can get to it um, even more directly. Um, we really wanna thank Denise Berger, whose legacy article is about black women for heading up our curriculum committee um, and Samantha DeVera for some of the work that she's done with Denise Berger, both graduate student leaders um, in the Color Conventions Project and now in the Center for Black Digital Research um, that allows us to do that work. We should also say that Douglas Day, which Denise and Jim um, co-founded and co-chair, um, um, also has a, a curriculum that is attached to it almost every year. And um, we would also like to shout out the work of Sabrina Evans, um, a graduate student at Penn State, and Shirley Moody Turner, who are developing curriculum materials to go with the new Black Women's Organizing Archive, um, which is one of the projects, Douglas Day Color Conventions Project and the Early Black Women's Organizing Archive that make up the work that Jim and I are spearheading with Shirley Moody Turner and an amazing team, including Lauren Cooper, um, our project manager, um, that um, pushes the, some of this work forward. So you asked a question earlier, Adam, about what organizers can learn. And I think that those questions, this teaching question and the organizing question need to go hand in hand because the young people who learn about organizing early are the people who will be our organizers later. And that is particularly um, particularly important, and we all know that, um, but also the folks who are um, really militating against Black organizing also know it. And that's why they are passing laws that outlaw um, the, the learning about Black history, um, about ethnic studies, about what they call critical race theory, which we all know is not critical race theory, but is actually American, the full breadth of American history. Um, in classrooms across the country. So we want to join Zen Education Project and their amazing um, uh, quantity of work um, for teachers and educators um, in, uh, in a modest way in saying that this book comes with exhibits, which comes with a curriculum that people can adopt. And we want to thank folks for reading it, um, for purchasing it, for gifting it, um, and for using it in their classrooms um, as well. And we want to thank you for all the work that you are doing, Adam. Um, I've been a listener from your very, very beginning. I haven't kept up with all of them because you are prolific. But we yeah. want to thank you for being um, uh, an educator, um, you know, um, and not waiting right until you got the degree to step in as a public humanities leader um, in so many ways. And also for elevating and celebrating so much of the work in a moment of real renaissance right for for um, black scholarship and for buck and for black um, public work as well and coming soon i gotta add this coming february we're going to be celebrating another year of our annual douglas day program where we celebrate the chosen birthday of frederick douglas by inviting all of your friends family colleagues uh, and classmates to join us for a live stream program which we've been doing since before it was tired on zoom um, and joining in transcribing and helping to enrich 
digitized collections from different parts of Black history. We've worked with lots of amazing folks with the, over the years. And this year, we're bursting with excitement to be able to hook up once again with the Color Conventions digital collection. And so if folks want to be able to get involved in small or big ways, look for the stuff on Twitter um, or visit colorconventions.org or douglasday.org. Um, and sign up to get the updates. We're going to be transcribing the convention records once again this year, but there's also going to be, and I think this might be one of the first places this news is coming out, there's all going to be, there's going to be all kinds of new activities to help us find the presence of women in the color conventions documents. There's a little bit of a kind of where's Waldo sort of quality to that, but we're going to see if we can't leverage some of that collective energy to really kind of build up this history. Um, there's going to be some uh, activities and announcements and curriculum to go with that. Um, folks can also start practicing their baking because it's a birthday party. We want to have fun. Uh, and so we got a cake contest because we got to make it fun. Uh, so look out for all of those. Um, we've had thousands of people participate over the years and we're still growing with lots and lots of our partners and colleagues and co-conspirators out there. Outstanding, outstanding. And, you know, make sure to y'all please, please, please follow uh, the Cumberland Conventions Project at uh, CCP underscore uh, ORG on Twitter. Um, an amazing group. I, I had the opportunity to uh, participate in a whole Douglas Day in uh, 2019, I believe. And that was such a fun experience. Um, it also makes you understand that uh, uh, Dr. Foreman and Dr. Casey probably tired because, uh, you know, that was a labor of love. But once again, it's labor. It is. It ain't easy. And so, um, you know, so so this actually is a great transition um, in one of our final questions here. Um, so when the going gets tough while reading, writing and, and teaching, along with creating these amazing events um, as well, what ultimately refuels y'all tank and helps refresh your spirit as well? That's a great question. Um, working in collectives um, refuels my tank. Um and, you know, you said earlier, this, this, there's this question about, you know, um, maybe it's about finding a good collective, right? I think it's about building a good collective, right? And, um, and building collectives is a, is a thing that people learn how to do, you know? Um, it, it, it means that you have to be a decent listener. Um, it means that people need to feel invested and like their ideas actually matter. Um, they need to be acknowledged and compensated, right? And treated as um, as partners. We're not always perfect about this, but we just spent yesterday looking at our Dig Black principles, um, and we think about them as a way to hold each other accountable. Um, so this being part of a collective man, I, I mean, Jim and I would have never been able to do this work if we hadn't worked together for 10 years with an incredible group of people. Adam, you know, you've been in a room with like 25, 30 of these folks, right? You know, um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I was ready to drop out of graduate school until we started this project. And I thought, I better stick around and see if this turns into something. I think that's true for a lot of us. You know, we find that the, the work on, you know, the website or curriculum or whatever we're trying to hustle out that day is oftentimes an excuse as much to be able to get together and think and learn. With the other thing so that gives me um, a great deal of joy, unexpected joy, I just did not understand that it would be so wonderful to pe to see people develop in their careers, um, to, to see the transformative work my siblings, my scholar siblings, my sister scholars, 
right? Our cousins are doing, um, you know, we're not often in conversation with Adhume, but watching Marissa Parham and Catherine Steele Knight and Erica Armstrong Dunbar and Dinah Ramey Berry, I mean, I'm going to get in trouble, right? Because, you know, you start naming folks, you, you should finish that list, but it's too long, right? Uh, Elizabeth Alexander, right? You know, um, people who are transforming institutions, who are, um, are, are transforming scholarship, and then to see the next generation come up, right? Like to be in the room when dissertation scholarships and graduate admissions are happening and see people like, you know, from there to seeing, benefiting from, learning from the example of, of scholars like Jessica Marie Johnson, right? This is, I cannot tell you how much fun this is, how, um, how much joy it brings. I just had no idea that this was coming, right? Like to see Martha Jones, like do a four book deal, right? Like, you know, I mean, um, and then to have them honor you with, you know, their time and their sisterhood. And, um, and, um, and so that, that has been one of the most exciting, exciting things too. Writing regularly and structure also refuels me. So that's the good, good stuff, right? You know, but like the quotidian stuff is like our write-on sites in the morning with Black graduate students and Black dissertation, small but mighty, right? You know, getting together every day to write. So if, if people want to join us, um, please write us at, what is it? Is it digblack at, at gmail dot? What is it? What's our, at, uh, digblack at psu.edu. Um, and we will send out the um, the code to people who might want to write with us. But structure, celebrating other people, right? You know, keeping your health together, all those things give me a a, a great deal of of joy. This is not easy work because they're gonna work you. They're gonna work you, right? So um, and building resources for other people and resources for for the institutions that matter to us. Those are the things that give me joy. How about you, Jim? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to follow things like that. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that also brings us joy is looking around the corner to a time when we're not going to return to what we used to call normal before, but being able to be in community in spaces with people. Um, once again, there's as I think we really touched on today. There's so much work to do, and it really is going to take a lot of us pulling together to be able to do this work. And I'm just so excited to get to read all of the work that we're about to see come out in the world, including certain dissertations and books to follow uh, from the future. Amen <laughs> to that. On here as well. Amen to that. And so um, this brings us to our final question. This is one of my favorite questions um, that I've really uh, uh, stuck with over the last couple months. Um, because I, you know, I'm, I'm one where, um, I don't know about y'all and your writing processes, but it's hard for me to do work without a little music in the background. Um, you know, instrumentals are actual, like, you know, uh, folks with lyrics and such. So, um, so before we head out, um, you know, like I said, I can barely do work without music. So, um, I love playlists, love playlists. So if y'all could cur uh, curate a color conventions movement playlist, what eight to 10 songs would go in this? What I already know is going to be an outstanding playlist. So uh, uh, Dr. Casey, you want to take that on? Yeah. Why don't I start? Cause I think 
Gabrielle may or may not still be with us on the line. Um, this is a fun party question. I think we're going to have to make this a regular part of our meetings because this is a good one. Uh, I know at least if Gabrielle were on the line at the moment, she would say things like Marvin Gaye, uh, some of his political songs, right? What's going on? Sweet Honey in the Rock. Um, it's hard to imagine that not with some kind of Nina Simone, Mississippi Goddamn, obviously. Um, mm. I'm also going to point back to some of the contributions. It's collective all the way down with us. Uh, Dr. and DJ Clay Coleman of the University of Pennsylvania, formerly with us at the University of Delaware, has made us a playlist that we use every year on Douglas Day um, with all kinds of people from Stevie Wonder, The Temptations, Curtis Macefield. Um, gotta have some Gil Scott Heron on there as well. Uh, oh, Gabrielle, I can hear the dog, so I think you're with us too, so I'm gonna pass it back. Uh, you know, playlists have, have been on our favorite list of things to do, too. So uh, Dr. Clay Coleman, who had a playlist with his dissertation that was just amazing on Afrofuturism, um, uh, has been doing playlists for us. And you can find them um, at DouglasDay.org um, if you want to go there um, and take a look at those playlists. And, I, you know, I mean, I, I also want to add to some Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone, some Tomorrow is My Turn right? One of her other uh, songs. Um, and um, to think about the way the past um, leads us to the future, um, to think about the way that the preservation of history is about future generations, um, and to think about um, Black futures as well as Black pasts. Um, and that's what our project is about. And that's what this book is about in so many ways. It's certainly um, what this podcast is about. Um, so uh, we want to thank you again for having us here. Um, and uh, we chopped it up for a long time because we've been together for a long time. It's been a little, a moment since we've been in the room with you, Adam. So uh, we thank anybody who is yes. still listening, uh, you know, um, to this quite long interview um, for sticking with us and for all the work that we know that um, listeners are also doing. Yes, yes. And you know, thank y'all so much for the love. You know, like I, I still like I was actually reminiscing um, on the I think it was a Thursday or Friday night. I got a I got a call from this mysterious number um, when I was just chilling in Boston about to get some food. And uh, I think it was Somerville, Mass. And I was just about to get some pizza, you know, and and all of a sudden I'm like, who is this? And I'm like, hello. And and it's and it's Dr. Foreman on the other line, uh, you know, recruiting me over to uh to 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 Delaware. Like I still remember that moment and like the phone call ending and then me being like, actually, you know what? It was the day, it was the um it was a Friday. It was the debut day of uh of Black Panther. And I know that because I called my mother, be like, Mama, mama. Delaware called me. They want me to come. And I still remember calling. She was like, Adam, don't, don't you play with me. I was like, don't. She was like, don't you play with me. And I'm like, Mama, I ain't playing with you. And so I still remember like calling um my, my mentor, Dr. Teresa Perry, who then called her daughter, Dr. Amani Perry, to be like, you better take that and move to Wilmington or something. And and I still like I still remember that early 2018 moment. Um, so I thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Foreman, because, you know, so much has, you know, changed in my life in, in this near four years now since that moment. Um, and so I, I want to say thank you 
and, and as well to you, uh, Dr. Casey, and um, and also to Dr. Uh, Sarah Patterson as well, um, because I, I remember meeting her at the at the um, uh, at the pen training that we went to. Uh, I think it was June of uh, 2018 um, as well. Um, and so I, I just really appreciate y'all and um, look, so, so, so many of my fun days I, are still at, you know, with my mind over um, in, in Newark, not Newark, Newark, Delaware, they, they still tell you about that. <laughs> but yeah, so, so any, any final thoughts, any, any words for, for the people? Um, and also y'all, we're, we're going to all of the links that y'all been listening to. Um, we'll put that in the show notes to make sure that y'all can uh, plug um, and play and, and, and go and engage with this phenomenal work. And so, uh, uh, Dr. Foreman, Dr. Casey, please take it away we just um, as we finish wanna, up here on um, today. Thank um, the Rutgers History Department that you're studying in, all of the amazing scholars there, um, and um, and to shout out uh, your advisor, Erica Armstrong Dunbar, one of the best people in the field, um, and to, to, to say thank you for all the folks who are um, uh, invested in and dedicated to uh, next generation of scholars like you and like my fabulous co-founder and fabulous co-director, Jim Casey, um, who will be um, leading the field for the next 40 years. So thank y'all. I think uh, I want to join Gabrielle in just saying thank you to you, Adam, um, for this amazing program. Longtime listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> if you look in the front of this conventions book, you'll find something like 200 names. I feel like we should say all of them but we'd be here forever. There are so many people who have contributed to this work um, in so many ways that we couldn't even begin to, to I think, remember half of, um, even on the spot. Um, we should also say thank you to the folks at UNC Press, um, Chuck Grinch, uh, Den- Debbie Gershenowitz, um, who were both hugely helpful in marshalling a somewhat unconventional book about these conventions through the process. Uh, it really took their, their sort of input and expertise to help move this um, to print in all the ways um, that it has. So uh, thanks to you, Adam. Thanks to all the folks that we didn't get a chance to name in this conversation today, too. Amen to that, y'all. And once again, we've had the amazing opportunity to talk to Dr. Foreman and Dr. Casey, amazing folks at Penn State University, about their incredible field changing, field creating, dang near, um, editive volume, uh, the color conventions movement. Black organizing in the 19th century. And the greatest thing I think about this book is that it goes to show that if you really dig deep into this book and read it and and engage it, you'll be able to show and be able to see the intellectual and and organizing and all the networks that you see in the 20th century and the 21st, you can connect them right here to this here book. And so please go out and buy this book uh, from UNC Press, wherever you get your books, hopefully, you know, from an indie, you know, if not UNC directly. Um, and also, please, if you get a chance, rate us and review us at New Books in African American Studies, wherever you get your podcast. And I'm your host, Adam McNeil from New Books in African American Studies. And as I always say, apparently now I think 88 times over and out. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.